listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. listening to the NASP podcast. This specialty pharmacy podcast is a collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The mission of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy is to improve specialty pharmacy practice by promoting continuing professional education and certification of specialty pharmacists while advocating for public policies that ensure patient access to specialty medications. As the healthcare industry's leading podcast dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners the NASP Podcast in collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Pharmacy Podcast listeners, this is a special opportunity. And it's really why we do what we do. You know, we've been podcasting for 13 years now about the profession of pharmacy. The amazing things that are happening collaborative together RX, that's one of our hashtag, hashtag together RX. And that is to change things for the patient's benefit. We know based on the stories that we're hearing from community pharmacists, compounding pharmacists, long-term care, um, senior care-focused pharmacists, that patients are asking for things and needing help uh, with payment, with uh, processing um, uh, the right treatment modalities through complexity of healthcare transition from hospital to home care. Specialty pharmacy has been a special place for Pharmacy Podcast because of a very special partnership that we formed with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacies. And I wanna shout out to Sheila Arquette. You are a champion of, um, of specialty pharmacy and the advocacy of the impact that specialty pharmacists can have on their patients. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the patient journey. Um, patient journey, there, there has to be a blueprint. There has to be mapping. There has to be a way to from an evidence-based perspective, because that's how you learn medicine when you became a pharmacist, was being able to build out an almost like evidence-based study that we're referencing in involving patients into mapping the best patient care possible in, in balancing the difference between, you know, straight up medicine management versus empathy versus helping the patient's core support unit support them better and to the best of their ability when i have champions that help me to build the content it's exciting and today i'm bringing on a friend of mine from specialty pharmacy thank you sheila for introducing me to michael baldzicki um, he's a champion of specialty pharmacy he's also the executive vice president of growth and strategy with excella health what an honor to have you here today michael thank you so much for being part of this Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. And uh, as Todd alluded to, you know, we're excited to have this partnership with the uh, National Association, uh, especially pharmacy, Sheila Arquette, and the Pharmacy Podcast Network uh, in collaboration with Optimum Care and Excel Health to kind of bring together this, you know, series of patient journey mapping, we call it. And uh, this series really is going to focus on understanding the patient care coordination across the healthcare ecosystem. And I'm honored to bring Two colleagues that I've been fortunate enough to deal with my background and my career, uh, Dr. Ken Menkowski, medical director 
with the neurology and also um, Colette Koulianis, VP of Payer Relations and Affairs with the National Hemophilia, Hemophilia Foundation. Uh, Colette and uh, Ken, if you want to say hello and introduce yourselves and your organizations, that'd be great. Hi, I'm Colette Koulianis. I am the uh, VP of Payer Relations at the National Hemophilia Foundation. Uh, National Hemophilia Foundation has been around um, since the 1950s, and I'd like to share about our mission. The National Hemophilia Foundation is dedicated to finding cures for inheritable blood disorders and to addressing and preventing the, com the complications of these disorders through research, education, and advocacy, which enables people and families to thrive. And so I've been with the National Hemophilia Foundation for just over six years, and I previously worked in the hemophilia treatment center space where I was the executive director of a hemophilia treatment center in Illinois. And I was there for several years as well. So thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Ken Mankowski. Uh, thanks Mike and Todd for the invitation. I'm currently the medical director of the St. Anne's Mount Carmel Comprehensive MS Center, uh, recognized by the National MS Society, which is a, a proud achievement for us. Uh, in my background, I've really had a history of building and developing MS centers from small solo private practice to being involved in large healthcare systems. And at the end of the day, those present different challenges, but at the end of the day, it's all about the patient journey and learning to uh, make this as reliable and predictable and supported journey for a patient who doesn't want the diagnosis that we're giving them. And although there was plenty of resources from specialty pharmacy to manufacturers of the product itself to our team on site at the clinic, coordinating those efforts uh, can be quite a challenge. And to patients, they sometimes feel there's chaos around them and we've got to try to bring that in and get them focused and comfortable with their path. Thank you both. And, and again, I think that alludes to again, why I asked you on this series one episode of the patient journey mapping that, you know, again, it's that patient with chronic uh, complex disease that must take that patient first approach that we now need to cultivate to uh, and gain a deeper understanding of those relationships, not only with patients and physicians, but again, offering that personalized information, care insights and, and greater support, because we know right now the healthcare sectors are recognizing the value of innovation and, and uh, effective strategies to address these challenges of high cost drugs. So I think my first question to you guys is really, what are the advantages of patient first model that you see within your own areas of focus that you know, uh, you know, could really create and provide that approach to the patient first component? You know, I'll, let, I'll, I'll kind of pitch it to uh, Ken first. Yeah, so that's a, it's a complicated question. It's really about putting yourself in that patient's position. They, they, you know, it's point of access, the first conversation. Let's just start at the time that we make the diagnosis. In my case, it'd be multiple sclerosis. And the traditional pathway is they meet the provider, they get a diagnosis, they get a strategy for treatment, and then they're not seen for three, six months, whatever that path might be. And then there's all these other entities that are well-intentioned that start bombarding uh, the patient and and they've never even been properly introduced to these folks so for us we're trying to develop a digital tool that it's it's our responsibility to, to develop that confidence in the patient that personal connection which we have the advantage of being in person with these folks early on and try to get a little bit of that marcus welby approach where there's a, a relationship and a trust and then in, with our digital tool we're able to have ongoing communication between the patient the providing 
provider team, specialty pharmacy, manufacturer patient services when appropriate. And really, we feel, and it might be a little bit biased because we're on the provider side of this equation, that if we start that path and we bring the team in and show the patient that this is a collaboration, all the parties know each other, we're working together for them, I think that becomes a very supportive team for the patient. In the absence of that establishment, it can feel very chaotic to a patient. And I'm embarrassed to say, I've been in practice 22 years and I just didn't know what a partner a pharmacist can be or especially pharmacy. That's been a recent understanding of mine and, and my colleagues are not all aware of that. To know that we have such a resource and, and folks that know the drug, uh, quite honestly, better than we do in many, many cases. So starting to find out how can we coordinate with our pharmacist, special pharmacy, as working together with the patient and the patient not feeling that chaos is really the challenge today. No, I mean, that's a great point. I think that alludes you know, to my question and, and maybe extension to Colette to kind of chime in is, why do you think that's happening? Is it just because of you know, the, the, you know, health plans in general just don't have those connection tools? Are we getting there? Uh, where can we maybe you know, extend the after side, uh, you know, any of these like the National Hemophilia Foundation I, you know, Colette, I'd like you to kind of extend where you have seen this evolve, because I know there's numerous platforms and tools that have been in the forefront of discovery, but I think we're still in the cusp of understanding what those connections are. And it, as Ken alluded to, we're just starting to understand those connection points and how important they are. Well, so first of all, I want to step back to a period of time prior to joining the hemophilia world when I was in the cancer uh, community and seeing patients and to your point, uh, Ken, where they get a diagnosis and then you know things are coming at them. But, but beyond just that, it's having to coordinate all of the care themselves. It's getting a diagnosis and maybe having to see a surgeon and then talk to a nutritionist or various different folks along their, their journey. And they're trying to coordinate that themselves. And having seen the frustration that these patient families felt. And are my results coming to this doctor? Do I need to track them down and get them here? And, and making sure who, who's, who's advocating for me? So going from that to the Hemophilia Treatment Center was a big uh, change for me because the Hemophilia Treatment Center, um, you may or may not realize, but it's like the original medical home. And so established in the 1970s, um, the Hemophilia Treatment Center has within the center the provider team, which you know includes the physician, the nurse practitioner, nurse, and then you have social worker, physical therapist, nutritionist, you'll have dentists, and the patient when they come in, they'll see all the different um, ancillary providers as well as obviously their, their provider care team, and then they put together a care plan. And so they really do serve as this kind of coordination center. The nurses, when a patient needs to have, let's say, dental work or any sort of even slightly invasive procedure outside of the hemophilia treatment center, then it's the nurses that coordinate that care with those other providers because they have to also come up with the treatment plan and make sure that those providers feel comfortable with the hemophilia patient when they're getting their care. And so seeing how this kind of walking alongside with the patient and and partnering with the patient and making sure that they made, you know, made this as painless as possible for the patient really opened my eyes to the need for this in a, in a more broad way. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from the model that's there with the Hemophilia Treatment Center. 
I'll also say to your point about the pharmacy, because within the hemophilia treatment center is, the majority of hemophilia treatment centers also have their own specialty pharmacy. Now it's just to serve patients for their blood disorder. So it doesn't, you, you know, you're not, they're not gonna get any other medications from that pharmacy other than what's being prescribed for that particular blood disorder. But the care coordination that happens as a result of having the, the team internal is a huge benefit as well. Um, not only from the patient's vantage point without having to try to coordinate themselves, but also from the, if the patient calls in, I'm having a bleed and they, and the pharmacy documents it, it also then is viewable by the medical care team who's the, wait a minute, this patient, this is the second month they've had a bleed or whatever. And so then they can intervene in a more real-time fashion. So the need to coordinate with pharmacy and providers is huge because we see the benefit in this model. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to learn from this that's already operationalized um, and, and in effect at about 140 centers across the country. No, Colette, I think you really bring up a great uh, you know, point in regards to just, you know, what models are out there to really put that patient first. Again, we're so focused on these high cost, high touch therapies that are really now in the forefront of you know, driving uh, more additional efficiencies. And, and Ken, I'd like to get from your perspective, again, you know, as a treating physician, working with hospitals, you, you work with pharmaceutical organizations to specialty pharmacies. Again, everyone's a specialty pharmacy these days. How can we take, you know, an example that Colette just went through, like the National Hemophilia Foundation, and really understand how do we, you know, put that, ensure that patient comes first from operations to financial to the patient itself. I, I really like to get your perspective because, I think you touched so many faucets of that, you know, th those those components would be great to hear from your side. Yeah, so I think there's several challenges, but I think it's still the responsibility. And again, maybe I'm looking through my in my lane only, but the provider still many times is that in our case, the MS neurologist is the one to establish that relationship at the beginning. And I think it's our job to develop some roadmap and bring in the appropriate people. I think primarily, and I didn't know this until a few years ago, so I'm embarrassed to say that. But what a partner the specialty pharmacy and specifically the pharmacy team can be, they're providers just like we are as MS physician providers. And those are the two entities that can really develop and maintain and keep patient on track from a treatment perspective. One of the challenges is I work with the manufacturers all the time. I think that relationship with physician and biotech can be clean and, and beneficial and productive. I know there's scrutiny in that world. The problem is they're very motivated for the patient for business reasons and in all the right reasons and all, all the reasons. Problem is, regulatory wise, they have a huge firewall. They're not allowed to provide personal care. So they want to be the everything for the patient. So the patient doesn't know there's a firewall, what they can do. So those communications can be very complicated when a patient asks a question from a manufacturer versus when they ask a question to a provider, whether that be the pharmacy team or whether it be the actual neurologist. So we are developing a tool to try to get right out in front of that. And it's really a communication tool and get out really through a series of scheduled and triggered uh, messaging from just support to education to alerting and alerting being where we can actually then intervene if necessary. Because our biggest challenge is the test that we order that never gets done. And so we need an alerting system to help us navigate patients, let them know that that needs to be done or just the false information that they hear. So even when we get a normal blood test, for example, one of our therapeutics in MS, it's really 
the safety profile is 100% based on one blood test. So when we get the normal test, we actually have an automated message that goes out to the patient. We also let the pharmacy team know that we're giving that support so we don't duplicate efforts and letting the patient know, hey, great, Dr. Mankowski reviewed your tests. Your risk for PML in this case has not changed. We look forward to seeing you at your next infusion because there's such an effort from all these parties. What you see is a duplication of efforts in some areas and then gaps in others. So I think really at the end of the day, we're hoping this tool, which is relatively in its infancy, really helps providers and the pharmacy team guide this journey as efficiently as possible and take advantage of those resources and then reserve the manufacturer for patient services on the financial assistance and coordinate that when we can. But I think it's really pharmacy and, and neurologists that needs to drive and then bring in other resources, whether it be manufacturer, National MS Society, uh, and so forth. No, I, I think that's a great point. I, I think one of the areas I, I want to really bring out, and, and with you two both on this, is you know we, we hear a lot more about patient care coordination that continues to obviously the, be the important component of service delivery to achieve quality, you know, efficacy, you know, achieving our goals when we, you know, as physician, as advocacy, uh, advocacy uh, and pharmacy kind of, you know, are, are bundled into the care coordination. You know, I, I think we are, you know, seeing a, a almost intersection of payers, right? What are these PBMs? What are the uh, disadvantages that we're seeing come through when we look at care coordination? And, and again, my experience working with our strategic partner, OptimiCare, that really focuses on rare disease, uh, that's really in the forefront, a pipeline within pharmaceutical companies to try and understand all the things that are going on that encompass care management uh, in regards to understanding those needs and preferences that are shared between providers, patients, and families to move from one healthcare setting to another. I'd love to get your perspectives, both of you, on, on working in those environments, particularly what are the disadvantages that still we continue to see? Maybe it's the PBM umbrella that you know, works with the health plans to kind of, you know, disadvantages those things. Um, and I'll, I'll let Colette kind of chime in first. Well, so for, just from my experience, Mike, I, I appreciate this, this question because, you know, there is a time and a place, there's no doubt for, for PBMs in, in the payer world, the, the, the TPA or the commercial insurer. But I think that when it comes to rare conditions, ultra rare conditions and the, and the intricacies and the needs of these patient communities. It can be, I often ask myself, is there a potential when their strategy they're recommending is going to, you know, oftentimes we see that there's a potential for conflict in the strategy that's recommended. Um, and, and that's where the patient can be disadvantaged. And, and I don't know if that's the route you were going for, Mike, as far as, um, having this conversation, but I'll, I'll tell you in our world, there is one size fits all strategies that are being applied and they may work for even certain um, chronic condition communities that take specialty medications. But for our community, oftentimes the recommendations that are being driven, whether it's and, you know, copay accumulator adjustment programs, maximizer programs, these new alternative funding programs that are being thrown out as a one size fits all. Our patient community is being harmed for certain, both from a financial standpoint, if they can't afford their medications from an access standpoint, but then from a, from the payer standpoint, 
they're inadvertently um, causing uh, unintended consequences for the payer. And if it's a self-funded plan, they're unaware that this is happening because they went a one-size-fits-all strategy. And so patients are ending up uh, going to the hospital or ER because they couldn't afford to access their medication or they're not getting the needed support on the front end uh, from their from their specialty partner. No, absolutely. I think that's what, you know, I'm trying to, you know, pull out from you guys from provider, you know, key opinion leader to obviously is how do we align again, all these segments within, you know, what we're talking about with those PBMs? Because again, working with our strategic partner, Excel Health, OptimiCare, you know, the, the biggest things when we try to care coordinate, particularly in rare disease is those, you know, disadvantages. Maybe it's prior authorization. Maybe it's a double step up, uh, st uh, step at it. And again, what we're trying to do is making sure that we're focusing on providing the most appropriate and consistent access to care while empowering the patients as they navigate through these transitions. And, you know, I'd like to understand, you know, from Ken, you know, from a provider and just where you work with in provider and, and pharma relations, those transitions. And again, the, the you know, the brick, brick walls that you kind of encounter, you know, when you work in within uh, those transitions of managing patients. So the good question, where specialty pharmacy services and PBMs overlap, we as providers aren't always, that's not always visible to us. I'm not sure we even totally understand that world, but just as a simple-minded provider in the trenches, one of us, our biggest challenges that we really should have solved a long time ago is we know when that patient doctor make the decision to start a medication, and let's say in, in the multiple sclerosis world, it's an infusible product, which tends to be our highly higher efficacious drugs that we utilize, we know from that day that we sign that script that the average national average before that patient gets the first dose is 43 days. I mean, that doesn't help anybody. And yeah. so what we're trying to do is via this initial tool to bring specialty pharmacy in right away. This tool also makes sure that all the demographic contact information, because what I've heard from talking to specialty pharmacy, and this amazes me, a good part of the problem is just uh, contacting the patient. And sometimes right. someone that just didn't know the phone numbers are wrong or the patient, don't, people don't answer their phone anymore. So <laughs> we try to get a message out after we talk to them immediately saying, listen, you're going to be contacted by these folks. These are the priorities. You're going to have, please answer the phone to some unrecognized numbers. We try to set the stage because it's our goal. We now all have working with an automated prior authorization tool. We've now learned after working with uh, our colleagues on the pharmacy side, uh, where there used to be not a whole lot of conversation or discussion, how important it is that when we tell our medical assistants and our nursing that you're the key, if, if we don't get as simple as it sounds to you and to them, this doesn't sound like the most important part of their day. They're answering questions about patient adverse effects or symptoms, and they're just doing real quick on this form. But once you educate them and empower them as being an important part of the process, where you know, get, just getting that information incorrectly making sure proper introductions are done right off the bat so the patient knows who the friends are that will be contacting them. It's not just a marketing tool that they're being inundated by. That's foggy and a lot of muddy water. But every day that medicine's not started is a day we're not treating their disease. And to my shock, I've talked to two major manufacturers in this space. Every day that a drug doesn't start, they become at risk of a non-start. The patient just gives up. The patient's yeah. already a little bit in denial. They're not excited about this medication. They don't want this disease. So every day we wait, they have up to an 18 to 22% no start. That is, that can't happen. 
So we're hoping to crunch that time of efficiency from script to first dose. Once they've committed to that treatment, now it gets more complicated. Now we really have to rely on the expertise of the pharmacist and the doctor working together to make sure it's safe and that's the right medication. So you sort of flip it and that becomes a different monitoring tool at that point. But we do it through a series of support messages, education messages, and then alerts that allow us to have intervention. A safety net we have is we constantly push out. Monthly we do, which might be too much. We're looking through some pilots of how frequently we should do this, but just a quality of life scale reported by the patient. We're hoping that becomes sort of air traffic control and a safety net of permitting something. If we see that quality of life deviate more than one standard deviation or 10% score, whatever the provider and patient want to put in, we get an alert. That then gives us the opportunity to intervene. Are they not doing well because their MS is out of control? They're not doing well because they couldn't get their drug. We don't know that. You know, so we're hoping that's a safety net, uh, that if we see problems going, we'll get that alert and allow us to uh, integrate or find out what the problem is and then intervene at whatever's appropriate at that time. And that's where I've seen telemedicine be wonderful. I don't think robots are gonna replace people. I think the human connection is still important, uh, but we utilize telemedicine after making many mistakes. I think it's a great access tool. We actually offer same day evaluations via telemedicine to our ophthalmology colleagues. Uh, one of the most common uh, syndromes is optic neuritis that MS patients present with. That can actually be a relatively benign can, uh, syndrome, or it can be blindness in two weeks. So we actually offer, and ophthalmologists are brilliant. When they make the diagnosis, it is what it is, where they can just give us a call. We'll pop on and see the patient in their office and just get the ball rolling. Steroids, or MRI, and then if the story sounds right, we'll see you in the office next week. Access shouldn't be a problem for these patients, uh, but we, because we, to Colette's point, we treat everyone the same, but we can't. If you have optic neuritis and you're an African-American male and you're at risk of sarcoid, We've got to see you faster than a 23-year-old with optic neuritis that's classic MS. And we have a, little, a couple of weeks to gather information and do things. So we've got to do a better job of triaging up front of who needs our resources immediately. Not everyone's the same. And we have to do that with collaboration uh, from provider to provider. Can I ask Ken, I want to jump in because something you said was fascinating when you're taking, you know, the patients putting in their monthly score and then you get alerted. And you said, we don't know if it's because they don't get their medication or we don't know if it's because they don't feel well. You know, Are they able to free type in there besides just the score? So they're giving you further information that you can use? So we're working through that right now. It's my belief that simple is best. So we have a very, at this point, we're giving them a few options. If they just have a, information they want to convey to us, they can free text. But at this point, we're putting a safety net that if they have concerns that they recognize that they're in trouble, that my cell phone pops up and they call me. Right. But this is a score that they may not even know the result, but with the algorithm put in place, if that score deviates from their baseline, I get an alert. And then based on knowing the patient, I can make decisions of when they should be brought in that discussion and when they should not. And we're working through that, right? Who should be notified, but it's gotta be simple. We already have information overload in our lives. I mean, my brother actually did the technology at Domino's. I don't need to know every time that another pepperoni goes on my pizza. No, <laughs> It's nice no, to know when I, they're at the front door. But I work with MS very closely on the steering, National Steering Committee. 
um, and, you know, have personal friends uh, who have, in fact, I'm staying with them right now, whose daughter has MS. But I, I'll tell you that the, the thing that we're experiencing and why we're on this coalition together, the All Co-Pays Count Coalition, is because there are obstacles that are keeping patients, that are barriers, that are blocking them from access. So if that score goes down because they're having a problem accessing their meds, and then you said if it goes more than one standard deviation, then, you know, that alerts you. But is there at least a next question that pops up? Is it because you're not feeling well? Is it because you couldn't get your meds? Because I think that's where more is better. And I think that you could be really helpful in this for us, maybe on another conversation, is having some, you know, some information um, in that capacity real time would be really helpful. So maybe we talk offline about that. But um, well, I, can I make one comment? Yeah, yeah, please. I, I totally agree with you. I'm just a guinea pig. We're trying to gather data and not make wrong assumptions. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's my estimation that we're trying to collect data to prove this. I think 50% of the time that a patient feels their DMT, disease-modifying therapeutic, is failing, it's not. It's a comorbidity. So we send right. out fatigue scales and depression scales and specificity scales and the quality of life. And we're monitored and we get alerted if any of those fall off the cliff at all. Because A, we don't want people stopping medicine we want to unmuddy the waters and help that patient intervene and say, hey, we've reviewed everything. That's not it because they think the drug's the answer to everything. That's what they've been told by some. Right. And that's not a drug failure. Don't give up on that. Keep your commitment. Let's work on your depression. Right. It also helps the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmacists understand when a patient does drop off, there's appropriate times for a patient to stop. So I think it's let's prevent unnecessary stoppage of drug or let's identify there's an access problem. But if they do stop off, we're really putting a lot of effort to understanding why so that yeah. the pharmaceutical companies can understand where their deficits in their product and maybe where it's not niched. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. It's a work in progress. Yeah. So, guys, I mean, what are, are we going to see, I guess, you know, the main emphasis for you both? You know, here's a crazy question. Will we all between all stakeholders involved? work better together overall, because now with these type of platforms and reports that generate from the data platforms have a potential to change the game. Does teleservices, like example, you know, to Ken, have a more play and, and will this transition into better care management? Again, I, and I know we're at the cusp of, you know, data analytics and platforms, but we're still struggling to really, between all stakeholders, to find a collaboration point and work better together in hindsight of the patient. Um, and I like your opinion on that, Colette. Well, I think that there's a couple things here. So yes, I think we definitely have to work, you know, smarter and better together and where we can grow from each other. And even though we're different disease states, we have some commonalities and crossover and where we have struggles. UM is one of them, right? The utilization management process. And where I might have a slight uh, disagreement only because we do the handholding and the care coordination from a hemophilia treatment center side as far as like once a patient gets the script, then what's the delay between the patient starting the drug? Isn't the patient in our world, in our experience, isn't them not answering? It's the steps that have been put into place as a one-size-fits-all. We're going to put across step therapy or we're going to put in this whatever, if it's, again, copay accumulation, whatever the strategy is. Well, there are some drugs out there for which they're I'm certain it makes sense to have a step edit in place or to have, you know, extra steps put in to make sure the patient is on the right therapy. But when there are no generics or biosimilar equivalents and the provider, obviously yourself, Ken, and our providers in our world, the experts, 
and you put the patient on the drug, then having extra steps thrown in for the sake of extra steps can only potentially harm the health plan from a dollar standpoint and the patient, right? And so what we've done at NHF, we started back in 2014, my colleague Michelle Rice, um, when she was, uh, you know, heading up this uh, for NHF, she started the Comprehensive Care um, Sustainability Collaborative, CCSC. And it's where we, as the National Hemophilia Foundation said, you know, what we understand here is patients' access is being harmed. And our one of our primary tenants as NHF is to make sure patients have access to care. And not only access to care, but access to the gold standard of care, which is the Hemophilia Treatment Center. It's the recognized gold standard. The CDC recognized, the World Federation of Hemophilia recognizes. It is the recognized standard. So, And Colette, maybe real quick on that group alone, you know, being a participant and in, in, in represent Excel Health as a payer entity, I can't tell you enough, that should be the gold platform of how you guys engage right. payers and advocacy groups. It's a phenomenal platform as you guys started to develop that. So, yeah. You know, kudos yeah, to you so guys. Back in, thank you. So back in 2014, it was just the hemophilia world. We brought together providers and payers and said, you know, let's facilitate some value-based conversations. Let's let the payers understand just what the patient experiences, what the providers are experiencing in the roadblocks. Let's let the payers tell us why they're doing some of the things they're doing. And let's try to collaborate together for the best optimal outcomes for patients. And through our successes in that, we started two and a half years ago, the value-based chronic disease collaborative where, because we kept getting calls from pharmaceutical companies, from payers mostly saying, why don't other advocacy groups do what you guys do? You're coming to the table with solutions. You're not just asking for more. And so, you know, we, we were gonna try to train other advocacy groups how to do this, but we realized early that they don't always have staff that can that's maybe um, experienced in the payer world. So we said, well, we'll facilitate the same sort of conversation in a broader group. So we have like 19 advocacy organizations uh, across the country participating, as well as about the same number of payers on that collaborative and working on exactly this, on where you know it makes sense to collaborate and trying to identify, because some patient populations have more distinct issues than others. You know, maybe some, their payer mix is, is more highly uh, swayed to the Medicaid side, and maybe others have, you know, more aligned with the, the general national payer mix. And maybe some like, you know, I, I learned after the fact, CF, they have the same amount of kind of care centers as the hemophilia treatment center does, and they have some of the same challenges. So where you kind of align and then working together, you know, again, smarter is better and, and learning from each other. And then also bringing the payer into the conversation and giving them the respect to say, we're not trying to hurt patients. Let us be clear. We want patients to have access to care, but we want patients to have optimal outcomes at the lowest total cost of care. And so we don't want to pay for things that are unnecessary. We don't want to pay for new therapies if there's no gain, except they're 10 times more expensive in outcomes. We want patients to have some skin in the game and onus as far as responsibility. Like if things are going wrong or a specialty pharmacy is sending you too much med, report it to us. Everybody has to play a part here. And that's something that we're proud of that we've done at NHF and, and, and something I I most love doing is just kind of facilitating these conversations. No, so and, clear and, and, and Ken, I'll give you a, a chance to respond to that, but 
Uh, I, I do want to ask one, you know, uh, point of question as we wrap this up uh, in the last eight minutes, because I think it's going to take a lot of time. And, and that's really talking about, you know, all the things that, you know, evolve around patient journey really come to the one end uh, stakeholder that comes out with that product. And that's pharmaceutical life science companies. And, and especially in rare disease, MS, Ken, you've seen it, NHF with the, the factor eight products, you know, the pipeline is so robust. So my question to you both is, as we work even with Excel Health and OptiCare, NHF, Ken, your organizations and affiliates, that as we you know, are engaged with pharma companies, where, when, how do they gain more of a share of a voice in this setting of care with physicians, advocacy groups, pharmacy, with their product and brand message across these stakeholders? Because again, these tools that we're talking about, you know, all the, all the resources, help their brands reach pharmacists and help pharmacists reach and educate patients. I love your perspective, starting you with Ken. Again, where does pharma fit in here? They they have to fit in, right? Uh, they right. The challenge, I like the uh, interaction. I've learned from uh, working with big pharma. It's a part of my career I enjoy. I see the benefits. Their biggest challenge, in my opinion, is they do everything the same for every patient because they have to in some sense, right? They, they're not treating individual patients, they're not allowed to, but they are strong marketers. And once that script is written, they view that's their patient. Right. And sometimes that gets a little salesy in marketing to patients that then turns them off, which then makes it hard for the specialty pharmacy who really has to talk to the patient to communicate with them. So I think uh, physicians and specialty pharmacy need to work close together. We're all trying to solve this problem independently and we're not doing it together just yet. I think we're communicating better, but we're not doing it together yet. And then with pharmacy, I think we have to be respectful in telling them to stay in their lane. When they have a, a patient services, a patient calls and asks a question about the drug, and then they have basically a nurse that has to read off a script because of regulatory compliance and, and they're a drug company, and they now find out that there's a 0.001% chance of seizures. Now the patient won't go on the drug. Well, my doc never told me there could be seizures. So I think it's responsible of the provider and especially pharmacy to work with big pharma biotech, but also make it clear there is a firewall between what you can do in patient services and then when actual individual patient care takes over. Right now, there's a lot of overlap and confusion and it's our fault. So I'm not sure that we've solved it. The challenge is how do we get better, more of these conversations? I mean, what I've heard Colette say, is there light years ahead of us and what I'll call sort of navigating patients through the process? Uh, and I've seen that in oncology at some places, hemophilia. Some of it in some cases, I hope this isn't offensive, is revenue. A, a neurosurgeon can afford to have a registered nurse that's highly specialized follow up with a patient after spine surgery every day because it created $120,000 of revenue. <laughs> we don't have that luxury in neurology. So our goal with our tool is to identify, we have a set of resources. How do we get those resources to people who need it? We waste a lot of money giving people support where they don't need the support. Mm -hmm. And we're letting people fall through the get, uh, cracks that need that extra support. So we're hoping to gather this information and be able to share it with big pharma and our specialty pharmacy partners and us so that we work together to, f to identify the gaps and fill them and not waste money just because it looks good as a program across the board or one size fits all, which I've heard you Colette, refer to several times. And I think you're hundred percent right. So how do we get, how do we identify the people that don't fit that mainstream journey? They're at risk of falling off treatment. 
uh, and then provide them the support they need as live time as possible. Yeah, and I, I just want to jump in only because I don't, I can't speak for any other conditions, but just to be clear on the hemophilia treatment sign that provides all these um, high touch services, it is, they don't bill uh, the payers for, for any of those extra ancillary services. Um, how these uh, HTCs actually uh, fund are funded is they do receive a federal uh, designation. They're the original covered entities of the 1992 Veterans Health Care Act, so they, they can access 340B or, you know, the federal drug discount. And so that when patients do use their pharmacy, and not all do, some choose others, but others are because the the self-funded plan has a an exclusive specialty network. But for those that do, it's the revenue that's generated that, that allows those centers to operate and they're nonprofits. So I did want to make sure and clarify that there is a lot of touch and services, but that they're not it's not a money maker from from all those services that they're getting. I don't know about other disease states. I did want to make sure and clarify that. Yeah, no, understood. No, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, I know we're at the end of our, our recording. Uh, with PPN, but you know, I think again, you know, understanding the patient care coordination across this healthcare spectrum, I think we touched on a many faucets that I, I think we can even talk about in the next two hours on. But you know, the main point of this is really in this discussion is critical to bring all stakeholders together to really understand the continuation of therapy for the patient. And I think as we move on uh, forward with these series and, and the next two or three that we'll do. Um, we'll continue to underline uh, those factors as we work on the patient journey mapping. Todd? Thank you so much, uh, Michael, for leading this conversation. Uh, shout out to Kenneth and Colette for, uh, for sharing and for really opening up and letting us see it from the patient perspective, Colette. This is so important for us in advancing um, all healthcare, but in we're we're biased to the pharmacists because they're our heroes, they're our favorite providers. So that's very special that they are able to take this message and share it with fellow colleagues, um, share it with um, primary care that you work with, and let them know, hey, together RX, this is our time to literally come together and to provide a much better, um, much better experience for our patients, and and you deserve that. So. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. A, a shout out to the NASP. Thank you so much for your support. Their annual events coming up in September. Can't wait to see everyone there. And with that, um, we thank you so much for what you do as pharmacists and for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.